from Matthew 5 again. So this is what it says. You're here to be a light, bringing out the God colors in the world. God is not a secret to be kept. We're going public with this, as public as a city on a hill. If I make you light bearers, you don't think I'm going to hide you under a bucket, do you? I'm putting you on a light stand. Now that I've put you there on a hilltop, on a light stand, shine. Keep open house. Be generous with your lives. By opening up to others, you'll prompt people to open up with God. Father God, I just pray for your Holy Spirit to be with us and just just radiate, shine bright, even in this place right now. God, we want to hear and be changed by your word this morning. Speak directly to us. That's our prayer. In your name we pray, amen and amen. You can be seated. So in the 1920s, America had a drinking problem. Oh, can I just say this before we get started this morning? Um, So if a little beeping noise starts coming from the back of the sanctuary somewhere towards the end of the service this morning, don't panic. <laughs> we, we did have um, a, uh, a leak issue in, our, in the closet, where, which is the pump for our whole sprinkler system. That, uh, and they're, they're working on um, uh, fixing it, um, but they're not able to do that until Monday morning. And so our fire system is in test. And um, it has to be reset every three hours. And so don't be, it's not going to be like the loud booming, it's not going to be that. But if you, we'll just have to, Lyle is ready, he's at the ready, he's going to run up the ladder. And we have, we have this really convenient um, control panel that's above the kitchen area there. And so we'll, you'll see him uh, get a ladder and run up there if that beeping starts. So I just wanted you to know what's going on if that happens. It's, it's, uh, we know it, it's coming, and it might happen before our service is over. So, (laughs) are we all good? Okay, let me start again. So in the 1920s, America had a drinking problem. And um, Daniel Oakridge wrote a book about it. He called it The Last Call, The Rise and Fall of Prohibition. And he started the book by saying, America has been awash in drink from its start. So for context, in 1830, American adults per capita drank seven gallons of pure alcohol per year, okay? If you're trying to get your head around that, that's three times what we drink today in America. So in, in, um, in 1850, Americans consumed 36 million gallons of beer, and then by 1890, it had gone up to 855 million gallons of beer. Abraham Lincoln said of alcohol, it commonly enters into the first drought of an infant and the last thoughts of a dying man. He called it the devastator. Uh, Benjamin Franklin recorded 228 synonyms for being drunk. That's how drunk America was. Uh, the women's suffrage launched in many ways because women saw the devastation that this was bringing even into their homes and into their families. And they said, we need to see the cultural tide change. And so in the 1920s, we as a country, we made a decision to enact prohibition to prohibit the sale and the distribution of alcohol, um, external laws to shut down this behavior that was, you know, so disruptive to our society. And many of you know, we widely consider it not to have been particularly successful. Um, In some ways it was. Um, America did drink less, but as you know, if, if, as you look through history in many ways, we, we just got sneakier about how we drank. 
and, um, and, and is sort of emboldened uh, the organized crime. And, and so as a nation, we thought, you know what? We've got a problem, but external law is meant to cage it in, isn't really solving it. And so a decade later, in the 1930s, there was a guy, Bob, who was a recovering alcoholic. And he was, gonna, he was gonna go on a work trip to Ohio and he realized, I'm tempted, I'm tempted to drink and so I wanna do something about it. He called his mentor and he said, hey, I need some help. And he said, uh, there's another guy that's, that the, the, there's, that's an alcoholic in Ohio named Bill. And so Bob called Bill and the two of them started hanging out and they realized, you know what? Uh, in, in this context of understanding and grace and kindness with each other, we find strength and we find hope. And so they begin to encourage each other. And as they did it, they, they talked about the reality that among other things, addiction is a spiritual issue. And so that there's something broken in us, right? Many people say that addiction is an intimacy disorder, that what, what we're meant to find uh, an intimacy with God and an intimacy with people. If we can't find it, we go to a substance to fill a void or to numb, you know, those feelings that are intolerable to us. And so that's how some define addiction, right? So it's a pathological relationship with a mood altering experience. And so it's, it's the thing like, I don't like these feelings. They're intolerable. Um, let me blast them away with something, some distraction, some beverage, some drugs, some screen, that we put in front of us, um, someone's body, you know, what, whatever I can use to get me out of having to deal with these intolerable elements in my life. And so what Bob and Bill started to realize was, you know what, um, we have to start with the reality that we have a problem. We have to start there. We have a problem and we are powerless to stop it. And not only are we powerless, it's completely unma- unmanageable. And so the, the thing that we, we went to as a solution has actually become our problem and it's destroying our lives. And so we admit this kind of this powerlessness and this unmanageability. And so what do you, <laughs> what do you do when you go, okay, I'm powerless to this big problem in my life? you start looking for a solution, right? You start looking, where's the, where's the, where's the power to fix this? I need, I need to find a power bigger than me and I need to find a power bigger than my problem that it's just, that it's just not you know, more power than I do, but it has more power than even my problems do, okay? And so they, they started to look for, for a higher power, right? And so I've, I've got to go to a higher power and I've got to admit my need and I got to come, and, and I got to come empty, and I got to come and say, you know, you save me and you help me and you give me grace and I surrender, right? I surrender. And as I do that, I find that um, God's grace and um, helps me not to have to bury the shame. And then what's interesting is as they continue to write out this list um, of the things that you need to do to get free, um, it ended up becoming the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, Rather than external laws, it started from the inside out, you know, saying, you know, I need a new relationship with God. I need him to heal what's broken in me. And so I'm not numbing it. It's in the context of understanding grace where I can be healed. And so as they wrote out these 12 steps, people started to get on board. And now millions of people, millions upon millions of people all around uh, the world have been led out of addiction because of the steps these men put together. And so I mentioned that because 
It was fascinating. A couple of years ago, um, there was an interview with Michael Keaton. Uh, some of you will know that name. He was Batman in the 80s. Um, but anyway, he was, he was talking with the interviewer about his getting sober. And he was talking about these 12 steps and how magical um, and powerful they were in his life. And the interviewer was a recovering addict as well. And so they began to talk to each other. And they're like, how do you think these guys wrote it? How do you think these guys wrote it? They're like, where did Bill and Bob get these insights? Because they're amazing. They're so intuitive about the human experience. Um, they're so helpful in liberating us uh, from the problems that we couldn't liberate ourselves from there. Like it's almost nigh unto scripture, you know, or some holy book. Where did they get it from? Where did they get it from? <laughs> yeah, they, they got it from scripture. Bob was part of the Oxford group which was a deeply Christian group. And so he adapted the language, what they were saying for people that may have also had a hang up about religion. Um, maybe they've, they've had a bad experience in a church and he, he didn't want anyone to get hung up by the language. So he changed the language to open the doors wider to others. But the reality is these principles are deeply rooted in God's word. Why? Because it's a path to freedom. That's what the, scripture, that's what the scriptures are, right? And so what's fascinating is, this is what I love about this. If you follow along with the 12 steps, they sound a lot like the Sermon on the Mount. And, um, you know, where, where did we start last week? Okay, remember where we started? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Where does the blessing of God start? Not by trying to get our act together, not by trying to control what's unmanageable in life, but it's admitting our spiritual poverty. I am powerless. I, and what I'm doing now is unmanageable. And then we mourn it. Blessed are those that mourn. And then we start to hunger and thirst for righteousness. I need somebody who's bigger than me. And Jesus says, when you're poor in spirit, yours is the kingdom. When you mourn, you will be comforted, right? When you hunger and thirst for righteousness, I will fill it. And so we begin to take our problems not to a substance and not to a drink, not to a distraction or not to somebody's body. We take it to God. And as we do it, we stop the numbing as, it, as, as that hurt comes up in that context of grace. And then what's fascinating again is that these 12 steps, the next thing you do is that in that context of grace, you say, I'm not trying to bury my shame. And so since I'm not trying to bury it, I let the failures just all come up. And as I do it, I go, I go, okay, God, I have your grace. So help me to be what I'm supposed to be. You know, I'm supposed to be a responsible, moral agent in the world. Help me to step out and be not a drain to the world, uh, but a fountain to the world. And so you make a searching and a fearless moral inventory, right? And then you go and make amends where you've put hurt in the world and you go out to make it right. And so the 12 steps, it's, it's fascinating. Um, it's exactly what Jesus does in his sermon here in Matthew 5, which we're going through right now. And if, if last week was the admission of need and the acceptance of grace, now Jesus turns and as we keep on going in chapter 5, he says, okay, now in the context of my grace, let's deal with how to be responsible and moral agents in the world. And he starts with, let's deal with anger. Let's deal with hurt. Let's deal with the resentment that's buried inside. Before we get into this text, let me just say this. Um, and as, as we get into this, some of you are gonna go, Sean, why are we talking about this? This isn't an AA group. We're not addicts here. We don't have an addiction problem. Is that right? <laughs> it's, it's fascinating. Um, 
Jeffrey D. Sachs of Columbia University, he released, (laughs) I think this is kind of funny, the annual World Happiness Report. They do a report on happiness now, I guess. And the reason that they do is because they found this trend in America over several decades. And this, um, it's basically that as the GDP rose and as people's incomes rose, the happiness quota stayed flat. Um, success wasn't making us happier. And then even an even more disturbing trend lately is happiness has begun to go down in America. We are the most prosperous nation, um, living at relatively the safest time in human history to be alive, and yet we are increasingly unhappy as Americans. So this guy, Sachs, was trying to understand why in his 2019 report, and so he entitled it Addiction and the Unhappiness of America. And he says, the rise of the U.S. income has been accompanied by worsening health conditions and declining social trust. And he says, what's the causation? What's, he's trying to figure it out. And so he says, America is a mass addiction society. Gambling, social media, video games, unhealthy foods, alcohol, opiates, various substances, risky sexual behavior. The prevalence of addiction in U.S. society seems to be on the rise and it's causing considerable unhappiness and depression. We've got a problem. And now we have more substances to choose from than they did back in the 20s and so we've got a problem. And and buried underneath all this is some simmering resentment. We've got an anger problem. And some of you go, Sean, you know, do we really? And, and I mean, I mean, I could, I could really pull up so many illustrations um, this morning about anger in America. It's not hard, but I realized, you know, do we, do we even need to see them? Does anybody need to know that we live in a country that is just upset? You look at the news and you see it. You look at your social media feed and you see it. Um, We've got an anger problem and we need to deal with it. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus starts with the Beatitudes. You know, you're blessed, you're blessed, you're blessed. When you admit your need, God comes in to meet it. God is gracious. This isn't, uh, isn't external laws to cage you in and try to force compliance. It's not that. That's not what Jesus is doing. He starts with your admission of need and the grace of God coming into it. That's where it begins. But as it starts there, now here's where the shift comes, okay? And he says, okay, are you ready in the context of this acceptance and grace? Let's take your rightful place as a responsible moral uh, agent and you're putting something out in the world that's not not good and it needs to change. And so he starts to talk about anger. This is what he says. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now he quotes there the Old Testament, and he's, he quotes the Ten Commandments. You've heard it said, you shall not murder, right? And let me just say that he's not undermining the Old Testament. Um, he's not trying to dismiss it. Um, what he's doing is, in one sense, intens- intensifying it, um, and intensifying it by showing the direction that it points, that there was a popular method of interpretation back then, which was try to minimize things to the very minimum. And so there was the law, do not murder, And religious leaders were like, all right, I haven't committed homicide today, done, yes, check. But that was never, you know, just the goal. You know, they were like, I didn't commit homicide, Mm, I'm crushing this, what's next, right? 
And he's like, no, that's not acceptable alone in society. Yes, we should not murder, but that isn't the hallmark that we want of our community. It's meant to be more than that. And so he shows where the law points. It's a deepening and not a destroying of the commands in the law because it's in human nature to want to do the minimum, right? Um, how few hours do I have to work out to get in shape? How many days you know, do I have to eat healthy? How many cheat days do I get in my diet? Does three work? Is that good, right? And how much do I have to study you know, to pass the test? We look for the minimum, and yet here... Jesus says, we're not going to do that with the word of God. How much do I have to do to be holy? How much service do I have to do for y'all to think I'm a good person? He's like, that's not the community that I'm building. He said, I want us to chase being all that we're meant to be as sons and daughters of the king and all that we're meant to be under God. We're not asking the minimum. We're asking what's possible when a human life surrenders to God, amen? And so, yeah, it starts with not murdering each other. It starts there, but then Jesus moves backward, or if he, move, he moves upstream, if you will, to the fountain, and he says, do you know where murder comes from? It comes from anger. It comes from anger. It comes from hate, and we need to have a little discussion about that this morning. It's kind of, that's kind of what he's saying. And so he says, yes to your forefathers. Uh, you know, law was given to not murder, but I say, whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, I pity the fool. <laughs> no, you fool, will be liable to judgment. So what's interesting is he centers himself. He says, I say to you. And this is part of what's you know, blew their minds that Jesus was putting himself at the center of this conversation. He says, and, and, and it's, it's like he's saying this, like he wrote it, right? Hey, when I wrote the law, this is what it means because that's what happened, right? That's, that's who he is, right? No one talked like that back then. And, and he's like, no, I'm telling you, this is where the law is going. And I'm telling you, I don't want you to be angry or insult or be mean to each other, basically. Now, is he saying that it's wrong to ever be angry? No, because Jesus got angry, right? At times, anger is the appropriate response to injustice and exploitation. We want a God of wrath when we consider abuse in the world, right? And, and so anger is the proper response to the abuse of others. And you'll see Jesus get angry at times. But his anger, scripture says, is holy, righteous, because it's rooted in love. It's an anger of love. I love people and I don't like what you're doing to them. And so here's the thing. Usually for us, our hate or our anger is because of our bruised ego. And what you see here is he's moving on a progression from anger to insulting someone to calling them a fool. It's anger that motivates into name calling. Just a thought, does that look like anybody's social media feed? Take stock. Now, technically, can you call someone a fool? Yes, in the Old Testament, fool was a technical term. Now, let me explain this. Fool was a technical term for somebody who tries to divorce action from consequence. I can do this, but nothing bad is gonna happen. So that's, that's, that's what a fool was. The Bible has a technical term for it and Jesus will use that term to address other people. You are a fool. And yet, he doesn't say it to dismiss them. 
The same Pharisees, think about this, that he called fools, he prays that God would forgive them while they were crucifying him. Don't miss that. This is an attitude that leads to action. He's talking about a progression here of I've got some resentment, you hurt my feelings, I've got some anger because of something you've done. And rather than processing it and leading it to a place where I'm praying for you and I'm hoping the best for you, I instead begin to insult you. He uses an Aramaic word here, raka, which means empty head or in modern language, blockhead. Um, And then it moves on to whoever says you fool. That's a Greek word there. And he's saying, basically what he's saying is you can insult people in multiple languages. So all of them are guilty, right? That's the point here. If there's any nuance between those words, that one is, is more about the heart. There's a moral indignation. You're a bad person, so you're stupid and you're bad. So if I don't like what somebody says and I take the step of dismissing them, you are stupid, you're bad, That progression, Jesus says, whoa, that's dangerous. That there's a simple word to summarize all of this, and it's the word contempt. If I have contempt for someone, Jesus says that's a problem. Contempt will lead to condemnation. That leads you to write somebody off. What are we saying when we say that kind of stuff? I want you to go away. I don't want you to be in my view. I don't want you to exist. I want you gone. I want you dead, right? But it's the same stream. It's the same ugliness. And Jesus takes it upstream to the source. Author, um, Arthur Brooks, he told the New York Times in March 2019, we are a culture of contempt. That was the title of the article that he wrote. The tagline was, the problem in America is not instability or intolerance. It's something far worse. Um, He says, political scientists have found that our nation is more polarized than it's ever been since the Civil War. One in six Americans stopped talking to a family member or close friends because of the 216 election. And then he cites an article in 2014 from a science journal about, it's called, this is what it's called, motive attribution asymmetry, which is a fancy way of describing, I assume my ideology is based on love, And I assume your ideology is based in hate. And listen to this. He He says, research has found that the average Republican and the average Democrat suffers from a level of motive attribution asymmetry that's very comparable with the Palestinians and Israelis. He says, people will often say that our problem in America today is instability or intolerance. That's incorrect. He says, motive attribution asymmetry leads to something far worse, contempt, which is a noxious brew of anger and disgust. It's not just contempt for the other person's ideas, but also for the other person. It's the unsullied conviction of the worthlessness of the other spurred on by what he calls the outrage industrial complex of screaming politicians, news networks, and social media. Contempt makes uh, political compromise and progress impossible. It also makes us anxious. It, it, It increases anxiety, depression, and sadness. It releases two stress hormones, cortisol and adrenaline, in ways both public and personal contempt is causing us deep harm. So Jesus goes upstream and he says, what's upstream of, con- of killing is contempt. 
And we have a contempt problem in America. And let me just tell you, God doesn't like it. <laughs> you know, I don't know if you picked up on that, but he said, you know, if you decide to harbor bitterness, which I love that verb, harbor. A harbor is where the boat pulls off to, to tie off and go into the, the convenience store or restaurant and get a snack and sit down and eat and take a shower, you know, all that stuff. If you pull your boat into a harbor, it takes refuge there and it stays. And if you harbor bitterness, that means you're letting bitterness kind of saddle up in your heart and you throw out a rope and you tie up and, and you let them kind of just into the restaurant with your other feelings. You let resentment just kind of speak to them and you let it color the ambience in the room. So are you harboring resentment? If we do that, it's a toxin in the culture. It's spreading a poison among us. And Jesus does not like that. Please hear me. He says, you're liable to the council. And so back then, if you murdered somebody, you were brought before a council, a judge. It's that kind of system here. He's not saying that you're going to go through a human court because a human court can't really uh, determine very well whether or not you're angry at someone. He's talking about defying divine judgment. And that's why he moves at the end to this, this what he, what's in, in this translation, it says hell of fire, which is our least favorite chapter to talk about, right? But let's get technical. He calls it the Gehenna of fire. Gehenna is a combination of words meaning the garden or the valley of Hinnom. And it was on the south side of Jerusalem. And in the Old Testament, there were kings like Ahaz and Manasseh. And when they, when, when they blew off God, what's left? Me. And, and so if I'm gonna worship God, I worship me and I need to consolidate my political power. And so they would worship gods in an effort to try and consolidate their power. And one of those powerful gods was Molech. And, and the way that you would worship him was by sacrificing your children. Convenient if you're king wanting to eliminate your rivals, right? And it really shows everyone that you're fearsome if people are willing to eliminate their own child. And so leaders of the nation, even of the people of God, would worship Malak by sacrificing their children in the valley of Hinnom. And God said to the prophet Jeremiah, I hate that. There's nothing that like this that has ever entered my mind. And why was God angry? Here's some of that righteous anger because of disregard of human life. And so when Josiah's heart was captured by God, it says in the Old Testament, he defiled the Valley of Hinnom and he threw trash into it to defile it as a holy place. And in Jesus' day, it was still that noxious, smoldering, burning trash heap. It's all in the Bible. It was a symbol of judgment. And so Jesus says, it's like that. The contempt that we show people is so toxic and so dangerous, I defile it. I cast it out. It's not welcome in my community among the brothers. That's the language used in the family of God that Jesus knit together. We don't harbor bitterness because it leads to devaluing the image of God in people. We don't do that. And it's interesting, you know, the, the, the book of Genesis says we're made in the image of God, right? We know that. And people debate, well, what does that actually mean? There's two places in the scripture where it actually brings that up. And one of them says you're in the image of God, so I don't murder you, okay? And what does the other one say? You're in the image of God, so I don't speak cruel things to you. Isn't that interesting? Because God made you you have value. I don't physically hurt you and I don't verbally hurt you. Both of those because you're made in the image of God. 
Some of you might be hearing this and you're like, man, you know, this is my least favorite Jesus. I like the Jesus that's healing people, you know, or Jesus that, you know, when somebody's having a bad day, he's like, get up. You want some bread? Here's bread, bread for you, fish for you, bread for you, right? I like that Jesus. This Jesus is, man, I, I, I don't know about it when he starts talking like this too much. Let me just tell you, the reason that he's talking with this kind of urgency is because of love. Because he loves us, because he doesn't want a community that harbors bitterness, and because he knows where that leads. It's anger that leads to murder. And and we're seeing it right here in Rapid City. Our homicide rate jumped up 100% in 2020. And for 2021, um, many cities in our country are trending 20% higher than they did last year, and that's a bad trend. Our rapid city crime rate in 2019 was reported 1.5 times higher than the national average. And there's a lot underneath that. There's a lot of issues that I'm not going to get into right now. And yet the reality is, can any of us debate as we as a community and we as a society stir in resentment and begin to amiably radiate that online and in our communities, it's starting to move into property damage and shouting and yelling and words always move to hands and hands always move to take a life when that's that progression. So Jesus backs it up and says, in my community, we cut it off right here. We're cutting the hate out. We're cutting the anger out. That's who we are. So what do we do? He gives us a solution if we keep on reading. Verses 23 through 26, he says, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So he tells two stories, right? One about um, going to church and one about going to court. And he says, if you come to church and you're here and you realize, man, I've got some issues with my brother, he says, you go make it right and you go solve that. And it's fascinating. You would think you, you, would, you would put worship of God before being cool with other people, but God values other people. And he says, I don't want you to come uh, curse someone to shout them out or dismiss them and then worship me like nothing happened. So go and make that right, and then we'll talk, right? That he values other people, and part of worshiping me, God is saying, is valuing other human beings, right? It's indistinguishable. He, he says, so if you've got a problem, you go and fix it with that person. Then he says, on our way to court, if you've got an accuser uh, taking you to court, make it right as fast as you can, but if you, if, if you wait until you get to court, it only gets worse from there. And so... If, our, if we were going to summarize these two illustrations about anger, he, he basically says, get on it early because it costs too much to wait. That's the point. When you see a little seed of resentment inside of you, someone hurts your feelings, get on it early because it costs too much to do it late. And, and let me just give you some free advice this morning. This is critical in marriage right? You first get married, it's bliss before God and everybody. You're crying up in front of the church, saying your vows, and then you run off in the honeymoon and it's magic. And then 
You get back home and you're, you're, you're getting ready and he's finishing off his dinner and then he takes the dishes and he throws them in the sink and he walks off. And you're like, am I supposed to do that? What, what should we do? Fine, 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 this is fine, this is fine. I don't care. Yeah, this, is, this isn't disrespectful at all, whatever. And, or, you know, you come home, ladies, and you've been, you're tired. You've been working hard all day at the job and you sit on the couch and you just want to watch, you know, your show. And he's asking, how's your day? And, you know, what happened? And you're like, why does he keep on bothering me when I'm watching my show, <laughs> right? And, and rather than process... Hey, when you say this, this is how I feel, you go, well, it's, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. And you take a little bit of resentment and you drop a little sand of resentment into the stream of your love, right? And maybe it's just two to three sands of judgment the first month, three, four, five, six, 20, 30, but you stack it up year by year and another year and another year. You always do that. You always disrespect me. You always talk like that. And then what happens? Your stream is dammed up. Year seven, you know, maybe you start going to counseling. And, and let me tell you what happens when you go to counseling. They start talking to you. And what happens? The, the, the more they get you to open up, you start going back to year one. Well, you know when it all started. And now you're having to pay money to talk about this silt bed, this beachfront of resentment and the sand piles that you've built up and it's completely squeezed out all the love and the passion in your marriage and you're having to pay this guy to help you dig up what could have been dealt with early. And if you don't do that, then you bring the lawyers in and now there goes even more of your money, right? Until they've got every last penny. Jesus says, get on top of it early and be clear, have the tough conversations because it costs too much when you do it later. Um, Deanna and I talked about this early on in our marriage and we just decided that if we're angry about something that neither one of us were gonna go to sleep on it and we were gonna um, stay up late and work through it. And we said that we're gonna keep short accounts. It's, it's the opposite of having hurt feelings and resentment and holding on to that so that you know 10 years later we can bring it up, right? Um, it's, we're like, nope, you know, hurt, you know, feelings and resentment, bring it up right now, even if we're crazy tired and we want to go to sleep, we'll talk through it, we'll cry through it, we'll wrestle through it. And we've tried to keep accounts short to get that river clear and that water flowing. And we're not always the best at that, but it's, it's a thing that is important to us. And so that means, you know, a lot of long talks. When, when, you, when you said that earlier, when what did you mean? Because I thought that, you know, when you made that joke about me and my head size, uh, it hurt my feelings, right? And, and I don't know why, but that's hard. Those kind of conversations are hard for us to say, you hurt my feelings. But then she's like, you know, why? You know, oh, oh, oh Sean, this is not what I meant at all. Uh, that's not what you meant when you said I had a big head. No, it's not what I meant. <laughs> you know, oh, what did you mean? I was just trying to have fun. Oh, well, I like having fun too. And I like you. And you know, oh, look, the river's flowing again, right? And you just get the resentment out early in, in conversations that took four hours in the beginning of our marriage sometimes will take five minutes now. So they, they still need to happen sometimes. But when you take care of it up front, you'll be the happiest that you've ever been. Why? Because you get on it early, because it costs too much to pay it later, right? This is critical. It's critical in any relationship. 
And so many of you know it. You've seen um, yourself let little irritations build up and slowly you went from not calling someone anymore to not texting anymore to never seeing each other again. And that's not how we're meant to do things. We're meant to go a different way. And so if there's something wrong with somebody, make it right. So let me tell you something. This is very practical. I I do this... um, all the time and because uh, it's something that you just do when, when you um, preach like I do on a, every weekend, you realize that when, when you share a message, if the spirit of God is not helping make these words make sense and opening up your heart you know, to understanding them, nothing of spiritual significance will happen. And if nothing of um, spiritual significance happens, then what am I doing up here, right? And so I'm just a talking head and I don't wanna do that. I, I want um, this to have spiritual power. And so, but I know if, here's the thing. I know that if I was rude to somebody, if I was impatient with them and harsh, if I do what a lot of us do, oh, I'm, I'm sure they're fine. It was no big deal. I was just tired. You know, they can, they can handle it and dismiss it. And God's like, all right, and it's like, you know, let's turn that faucet of the blessing of God and it turns into this trickle and I can feel it. And so I've realized I can't get up here unless I feel like, you know, I'm in a good place with God. Me and God are good and God and I can't be good if I've been harsh and impatient with my kids or with Deanna or with any of you. And some of you, you know, some of us, we can fake it. You're like, I, I sit in church and all I have to do is just kind of shove my emotions down a little bit, right? We're shovers. Well, I'm gonna kill what's inside. And God's like, no, I, want you to, I don't want you to do that. When you show up here, if you've hurt somebody, I mean, reach out to them now, text them now. And that's a great thing. You can just boop, hey man, can we talk later when I said this? And then don't minimize it. Don't min- I, I was really tired. It's been a long night. And you know how you get. That's not an apology. Just say, hey, I was rude to you this morning and I'm sorry. Full stop, <laughs> full stop. Remember, um, we started this series talking about being a city on the hill, being a bright and shining light in a dark world. And can you imagine how different you will be in our culture if we say those words, I'm sorry, and mean them, not the dismissive way when you say, I'm sorry, you feel that way, because that's not an apology either. You're, you're right. <laughs> you're apologizing for my feelings, that's completely illegitimate. You, can do, you, you just can't do that. Can, can you really say, I'm sorry for what I did? Because here's the fascinating thing as we land this thing. Bob, you can come on up. I, I, I want you to notice what Jesus is doing in this. Number one, he says, see this thing as personal. Make it personal. And I love that. He says, it's not just about murder. It's about hate. And I, and I think everyone would be on board with that message, right? That, that's so popular in America. Like, yeah, I hate dumb. I hate people who hate, right? And Jesus is like, right. And then he switches to, this, to these personal pronouns. And he says, so if you <laughs> are on your way to the altar and you remember somebody that you hurt somebody else, isn't that fascinating? He flips the whole thing on us and he doesn't say, so think about all the times you've been hurt. He doesn't say that. That's easy, that's a layup, anybody can do that. Everybody does that. Let me catalog my resentments today, right? All of us know how to catalog where others hurt us. Jesus flips it and he says, no, 
once you're right with me, I want you to take a searching and fearless moral inventory of your life and see where did you hurt somebody else? If there's a brother that you offended, stop for a minute and think, was I, how did, was I cool the way I talked to her? She was clearly trying to tell a story. Did I blow her off or was I impatient with him? Did I mock him in front of everybody else for what? Was it out of my own insecurity? Why did I do that to him? I just put a little ugliness out into the world. I don't wanna be that person. And he says, stop and think about, did I offend somebody else? And make it personal. So many of us are like, yeah, the world's full of hate. The world is terrible. Yeah, but, but you can't control what the world does. You can't control what, they, what the other po- political party does. You can't control what those people do, but you can control you. And as far as it depends on you, become responsible moral agents. And where have I put pain out in the culture and where have I put anger out in the culture and let me own it and let me be honest because this is where it gets hard but that's where we get healing so some of you have, have, have never had that experience of walking in with all the armor off and saying to somebody else hey when I said this it was rude and I'm sorry and just leaving it now Yeah, they they did things too, but you're responsible for you. And Paul said it this way, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. Think about your own life. Is there anyone you need to apologize to and not tell them all the wrongs that they've done, but just admit the wrong that you've done. And often when you do that, it creates a safe place for people to share theirs back. So make it personal. Number two, make it feel logical. That's what Jesus does. Someone's going, Sean, I can't forgive that person. There's no way that I can go and ask for forgiveness from that person. But Jesus links it to our spiritual life. That's why he uses that altar imagery and even that judgment imagery of that trash heap. He uses the altar and the throne. And he says, when you're thinking about the fact that you might've hurt someone and need to apologize, connect it to your relationship with me. The resistance in you may go, well, they don't deserve it. Of course they don't. Well, they they might reject it. They might. Well, I don't think they would value how brave I am being in doing this. They may not. But I'm asking you as a recipient of my grace to be a conduit of my grace. Are you gonna stop the stream or are you gonna let it flow through you? So I'm asking you to go and how they respond, that's up to them, but you be a conduit of grace in the world. The last one, and he says, make it theological as a function of worshiping me. That's basically what he's saying. Apologize to them. And by making it theological, it sobers us and it comforts us. It, it sobers us because, you know, you know, you have to do this. You have to, as a function of relating to me, I'm telling you to do it. And, and you don't want to show up in my presence having blown me off. It's, it's interesting. My kids, you know, you know when, the, when, they're, when they're having a discussion, uh, a fight, we'll call it, in the room. I've done this in the past. If I hear them, I'll say from the other room, from the bedroom usually, What's going on out there? And then I'll say, do you, do you want me to get involved? 
do you want me to get involved? And it's usually, these days, it's usually Lazarus that's causing some trouble these days. And I'll, and I'll hear his little voice say, no, daddy, we're good. <laughs> because if daddy gets involved, there might be consequences that he doesn't like, right? And so he's starting to realize that it's just better to deal with it now than to wait for the judgment, right? Than to, to wait for the consequences. It's almost as if God is saying that you know me as gracious and kind. That is my character, but I'm also judged. Don't look at me and say, yeah, I know you told me to forgive these people, but I'm just gonna blow you off. Don't wait for that. Some of you may be thinking, but if I forgive that person or if I apologize to them before they apologize to me, I'm letting them off the hook. And that's where being theological actually helps because you could read verses like, well, vengeance is his, <laughs> says the Lord. And you go, well, he, he's gonna deal with them. I don't have to be the judge. No one gets away with anything. It will be paid for either in Jesus shed blood on the cross or in their life. Pray for the redemption and you obey the King who is willing to pour out his life for his enemies. And go apologize and make things right as far as it depends on you. So make it theological. Now, does, does that mean that we never take issues to court? No, if you've been physically abused, you should report somebody, but not so that they'll get destroyed, it's so that you can protect the rest of society from someone who's abusive. Do you see the different motivation there? It's not resentment, it's love. And that makes all the difference for you. So you make it theological. I may need to report somebody, but it's always the hope of redemption and a concern for the community, right? And yet when I'm dealing with somebody who's hurt me, I can trust my soul to the Lord and their soul to the Lord. So you make it personal, you make it logical as a function of knowing God, I'm gonna do this and you make it theological. So let's lean into his grace and to his kindness. And I'll tell you for me, just honestly, as we close, I've had a lot of resentment in my heart over different things that have happened in life and even a lot of anger. And anger can be a comfort sometimes, right? It can be a motivator. It can make you feel good and it can make you feel justified that there's an, an intoxicating element sometimes of being furious. It's where we're so drunk on right now in America, but you don't get contained this receptacle of anger. It spills out into the rest of your heart and messes up relationships until you can get to the place and say, I don't wanna hate anymore. It's too toxic for me to carry around. And so I remember going and following these steps in the Sermon on the Mount, coming to the Lord and saying, you know, I don't want to be angry anymore, but I'm powerless to stop it. That's where we got to go. And his grace flooded in and his kindness overwhelmed me. And then the most fascinating thing happened. I considered how I'd been cruel to other people that I had hurt. It's interesting how easy we can feel entitled well, they started it, they did it first, look at what they're doing. I had never stopped to consider, yes, all of that, but you've judged them and condemned them. You've created no path of redemption in your heart, even as you pray for them. And as you've been rude, as a believer, you've been mean. And we all know it, religious bad people are the worst. When you wanna make a really bad evil guy in a movie, make them a religious bad guy. And I was like, I don't wanna be that. Whatever happens, I don't wanna be that. And so I had to release my anger and trust God. And then I had to apologize for all the wrong things that I had done. And then try not to make light of any of it on the heels of that. And over time, I've watched God heal wounds that I didn't think were possible to heal. Nobody and nothing is too far gone. God can do amazing and miraculous things and we don't get 
control how it flows, but he's given us uh, responsibility. And so we can say for my part, I'm gonna receive grace. For, you know, and, and then I'm also gonna show grace for my part. I'm not gonna hide before God. I'm gonna come honest and real and trust that as I come poor and empty and confessing his mercy just floods in. And then by his strength alone and by his power alone, Holy Spirit fills me. I'll extend my mercy, that mercy, his mercy to others. That's how we live. And as you watch, when a flood of mercy begins to flow out of a community, like this one, when people hear us apologize to each other and we don't let the sediment of resident, you know, the sand build up, they'll go, what? What kind of people are you? No one does this. If someone offends you, you store it up and use against it later, right? But you guys let it go. It's just weird and different and beautiful. It's a light in the darkness and a city on a hill and that's what we're meant to be. Amen. Um, here's what I want to do just as, as, as a response to this message this morning, and then Ethan will close us. I want us to ask God to shed some light in any part of our spirit man that might be harboring any bitterness or anger or even intolerance for any kind of group of people or person or political party, anybody. And I want God to just minister to us this morning as we release that and be the people of God who he's calling us to be, amen? Let's disagree on this together. Father God, I just ask that you would move in our hearts this morning, God, and you would release any seeds of bitterness, anger, contempt in the body of Christ. We are meant to be love and show grace and mercy to a world that is hurting and angry and bitter and in contempt, Lord. So help us first as your church to show this. Help us to be the leading example of love, even when it seems like the proper response would be to be angry. Even when it seems like it would be the normal thing to do. Well, he hit me. Did you see what he did? But let us respond differently. Let us respond in a way that'll just make the world just kind of shake their heads and say, what is going on? And let them. God, we just released that this morning. Can you show us, can you, can you, in all your glory, light shines out and shines brighter than any darkness, right? We just ask you to come in and shine the light in our spirit, man. Show us any hidden place that we've harbored, bitterness, anger, contempt. And Lord, do what only you can do, uproot those things this morning.